Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Previously on Fox News Rewind, 9-11. Osama bin Laden uh, was born in uh, Saudi Arabia for a father who basically came from Yemen. Zawahiri was born in Egypt and he is a, a doctor, a surgeon by trade. Geography explains why the Soviet Union has sent an army into Afghanistan to dominate that country. And if they could, Iran and Pakistan. The U.S. had been helping the Mujahideen, had been providing them with money, had providing them with, with arms, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It didn't occur to a lot of people at that time that Afghanistan would be a source of danger and indeed major threat to the United States. It just wasn't on the radar. We're not walking away until our mission is done, until the invader is out of Kuwait. The Saudis said, no, we want U.S. military coming in here and basing here to help fight. And Osama bin Laden was massively offended by this. Al-Qaeda went from just an idea to an actual organization uh, planning and plotting against the United States. Episode 2, The 1990s. Tonight, we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Such is a world worthy of our struggle and worthy of our children's future. There was a lot of talk about a new world order um, and a lot of controversy about that. Fox News senior political analyst, Britt Hume. But uh, I think to the most Americans, the new world order looked like one in which our mortal enemy had been defeated and that our prestige was rising around the world. We were the victors. We were the world's sole superpower. And at least in terms of foreign policy and the world situation, life was pretty good. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who was known as the Blind Sheikh, was a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence who was graduated from Al Azhar University in Egypt, which is the uh, has been the seat of Sunni Islamic learning and jurisprudence since the 10th century. Former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, Andrew McCarthy. So although in American circles, he was kind of uh, depicted as if he were, uh, you know, a stark raving, crazy lunatic. Uh, in point of fact, he had tremendous influence over terrorist organizations, including the cell that formed up under his tutelage in New York because of his mastery of the doctrine 
that animates jihadist terrorism. He was a world-renowned authority uh, in fundamentalist Islamic jurisprudence. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh, uh, was uh, an Egyptian Islamist cleric. Former United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mary Jo White. Very charismatic, uh, very radical, uh, and was in the United States, essentially, uh, in that uh, early 90s uh, period, uh, seeking asylum, political asylum. And he was preaching to his followers, you know, in and around, in various mosques, community centers in Brooklyn, New Jersey, Manhattan. The blind sheikh who came here uh, from Egypt via Sudan and Saudi Arabia, uh, even when he was settled in the United States, continued to have considerable connections uh, overseas. And there was never really a divide between uh, the international activities and the domestic ones. These guys considered themselves to be global jihadists. They had been involved in what they deemed to be uh, a global jihad overseas, particularly uh, in Afghanistan, which is really where all of this grew out of uh, in the 1980s. Al Farouk Mosque was, um, you know, a place where uh, Omar Abdurrahman used to to lecture, um, and um, many uh, extremists, especially from Egypt and other places, uh, were there around Omar Abdurrahman. Former FBI supervisory special agent Ali Sufan. It was basically the uh, the cornerstone of. Uh, Islamist jihadis, if you want to call them, here in the United States early on. Uh, many people, especially in the FBI, in the New York office, were very concerned about what was going on. But unfortunately, at the time, Islamists were not considered enemies. Uh, it was very difficult to convince the leadership in Washington and uh, in the Department of Justice, uh, and even sometimes in the office itself in New York, the FBI office, that these guys are a threat. Because after all, the Mujahideen were our allies. They were our friends. They fought the Soviets with us. And many of the um, you know information uh, that at the time the FBI had about the suspicious activities of Omar Abdurrahman and his followers were looked upon as maybe um, intel, fake intelligence, um, you know, fabricated by Egyptian uh, intel agencies in order to make the life of these Mujahideen here more difficult. The jihadist terrorist cell was forming up in the New York metropolitan area in the late 80s. It was conducting some training exercises in remote areas uh, outside the city. The FBI had some awareness of it. Uh, but it really didn't, uh, I don't think it was on the map, so to speak, until the murder of Meyer Kahani. The extremist rabbi lay mortally wounded on the carpet, allegedly shot by accused assassin El Said Nosser, an Egyptian-born Muslim who was found not guilty of murdering Kahana last Saturday night. The jurors pointed out that none of the witnesses in the crowded hotel room saw Nocer pull the trigger, even though he was convicted of shooting two other people, a member of the audience and a postal police officer who also wounded Nocer. In John Miller's book, he opens up saying 
guns that were bought that would kill uh, uh, Kahani in Manhattan were bought in Seaford, Long Island. Host of The Brian Kilmeade Show and co-host of Fox & Friends, Brian Kilmeade. I'm in Massapequa, Long Island. I know exactly the ammo store in which they were bought. That organization, that cell, got going in the late 1980s with a lot of training. No Sayers killing of Kahani was the first real operation that it carried out. So, unfortunately, um, you know, law enforcement here in the United States and the FBI, they were very limited on what they can do um, until the very first World Trade Center bombing. 110-story tall twin towers of the World Trade Center were rattled by the force of the explosion, sending smoke billowing to the very top of the 1,710-foot-tall buildings. About 130,000 people either work in or visit the complex each day. Thousands were trapped for hours, trying to make their way down crowded emergency stairwells, many of which were filled with acrid smoke and further darkened by the cutoff of electricity to the buildings. The planning of it, I think, began in the time after uh, Meyer Kahani was murdered by El Saeed Nasser, uh, an Egyptian uh, na uh, naturalized American uh, who turns out to have been a key figure in the cell and the likelihood is the planning of the attack uh, began in uh, with his group the group immediately around him and a lot of it took place where he was in custody in New York prisons urging his confederates that uh, he had done his part and it was time for them to do their part and I think the plan started out as uh, a potential of having a campaign of explosions throughout Manhattan uh, at, at certain uh, Jewish targets, American government targets, uh, and other uh, symbolic targets. And ultimately, what they did was settle on the Trade Center because it was thought to be the, uh, the heart uh, of American finance and American finance was deemed to be, uh, as far as the terrorists were concerned, uh, a big cause of America's influence in the world. A number of innocent people lost their lives. Hundreds were injured and thousands were struck with fear in their hearts when an explosion rocked the basement of the World Trade Center. To their families, you are in the thoughts and prayers of my family. And in the synagogues and churches last night, today and tomorrow, you will be remembered and thought of again and again. A lot of the people operating in the United States who were the most influential ones in the cell were people who either had fought in Afghanistan or who had been important figures in the fundraising and recruitment to send people to Afghanistan. Ramzi Yusuf um, was involved in the jihad in Afghanistan. He was not a member of Al-Qaeda. He was an independent kind of, uh, you know, jihadi. Uh, was trying to uh, do his own thing. Uh, Ramzi Yusuf came uh, to the United States in order to conduct the terrorist attack against the, the World Trade Center. He always saw the World Trade Center as, um, you know, uh, an image 
of American economic dominance in the world. And that's why he wanted down. Ramzi Ahmed Youssef is the focus of an international manhunt. Investigators describe the 25-year-old Iraqi-born taxi driver as a major player in the World Trade Center bombing, and they believe he's left the country. Investigators claim a witness spotted Youssef before the bombing in the yellow rental van used to carry the explosives to the World Trade Center. Immigration officials say Yusuf was caught entering the United States illegally, but was released because he requested asylum and there was a lack of detention space. Ramzi Yusuf was a very uh, capable guy. He was uh, believed to have come in from um, a kind of a no man's land in the um, in the regions uh, between Afghanistan and Pakistan, a lot of which are ungovernable or at least ungoverned. Uh, and and largely controlled by um, fundamentalists. Um, And he was uh, obviously a trained terrorist. Uh, The the 1993, well, it was actually 1992 into 1993 bombing plot uh, took on a new momentum when he got here. Uh, And a very unfortunate aspect of that is that the FBI had an informant into the cell whose name was Imad Salem, who turned out to be the main uh, informant witness in my prosecution of the blind Sheikh. Salem was in, the FBI had successfully infiltrated him into the cell during Nocera's trial for killing Kahani, uh, which began in 1991. Uh, and as a result, Salem was able to find out that there were these um, fledgling bombing plots and that they were that they were talking about doing uh, major terrorist operations in the United States. Um, But there was a dispute between Salem and the FBI, which resulted in the FBI booting Salem out of the investigation. And regrettably, that happened right about the time that Youssef showed up, like around September of 1992. So the worst of all worlds happened as far as the United States was concerned in that contemporaneously, we lost our window into the operations. And at the same time, we had the arrival of somebody who was a much more competent uh, terrorist and bomb builder than uh the other people who had already been involved in this. And once Salem, uh, once uh, Youssef arrived uh, in the United States, he almost immediately uh, got into the blind shakes circle. He was living with people who were involved in the bombing plot and who had been involved in the training uh, that the FBI had observed uh, in the, toward the end of the 1980s. It was obviously a horrific crime, a rude awakening in the legal community and the broader community that, you know, that terrorism really had come, um, you know, to the United States and in particular uh, New York. Uh, You know, not as much was known about it then as became known in terms of just, you know, how, how it was part of a much broader plot, but it was obviously in and of itself, you know, a hugely significant, disturbing um, you know, uh, event uh, in the New York community, really throughout the United States. I mean, it was a very dramatic, horrific act of terrorism. It, it was much, much less damaged than the ambition of the terrorists had been. They they had not only uh, assembled this uh, 
this very sophisticated for, for on the budget they were on uh, the sophisticated chemical explosive. They also had laced it with um, with toxins, which they tried cyanide in particular, which they tried to uh, attach to hydrogen tanks in the hope that it would aerate uh, during the explosion. So their hope was not only to kill everybody in the trade center, they they hoped to knock one tower into the other and and cause a mass murder of thousands of people. They actually were hoping to create cyanide clouds that would kill people uh, who were even remote from the uh, explosion. This is a story that really, that, from the point of view of kind of learning who did what and who was plotting to do what in the future, uh, you kept learning more and more. So in terms of the bombing of the Trade Center in 1993, that, that was really, you know, those that were involved in that, certainly immediately, including Youssef, who really was the leader of the plot from within the United States, uh, along with a number of other um, uh, co-defendants, as it turned out, in and around you know, New York uh, and New Jersey. Uh, the first break in the case was finding the vehicle identification number on the rider truck that had carried the bomb. And Youssef and a driver actually had driven that uh, uh, the rider truck into the Trade Center. Uh, and then basically identifying uh, the truck from the vehicle identification number as a truck that had been rider truck that had been rented uh, from a place in New Jersey uh, and essentially two or three days later you know one of the co-conspirators showed up to collect his believe it or not rental deposit. He returned to the rider truck company about 10 15 a.m. this morning ostensibly to obtain the return of a $400 deposit fee he had uh, left for the van when he rented it. When he returned uh, agents and detectives were in the office when he left, he walked about a block and a half to a nearby bus stop at the intersection previously indicated. And when it appeared he was going to board a bus, we effected the arrest. We uh, went back and uh, developed sources uh, inside Al Farouk Mosque and inside uh, Omar Abdurrahman's circle that uh, generated significant intelligence at the time that they were planning to do a serious of terrorist attacks here in the United States. They were planning to blow up tunnels, bridges, 26 Federal Plaza in New York, which is a federal building where the FBI offices are, and also the UN. The Landmarks plot was something that grew directly out of the Trade Center bombing. And in part, it was uh, it, it was theorized as something that um, that they could use not only to make a statement, but also to, to try to, in their minds, they thought one of the things they could accomplish was to obtain the uh, release of the Trade Center bombers. And one of the one of the things that they were um, w- one of what turned out to be some of our best evidence in the case was um, efforts that they were making while they were um, planning the simultaneous landmarks attacks. Uh, efforts that they were making to try to uh, investigate the possibility of breaking the Trade Center bombers out of their captivity in American uh, prisons. Uh, And the reason that ended up being key evidence was because the Blind Sheikh took a significant role in it, particularly trying to uh, figure out who had betrayed Mahmoud Abu Halima, who was one of the Egyptian uh, World Trade Center bombers who was apprehended in Egypt and then brought back 
to the United States for prosecution. So that thread, as far as the FBI was concerned, went on throughout the uh, what was no, what became known as the Landmarks plot. We had a, an informant, uh, Ahmad Salem. He basically infiltrated um, you know, a much bigger group, about a dozen uh, terrorists uh, who were plotting to blow up uh, the bridges and the tunnels between New York and New Jersey, the FBI building, the UN building, uh, the GW Bridge, all in a you know, in a, a very short period of time, so that literally thousands of people in the tunnels would have would have been drowned from uh, massive bombs going off uh, in the tunnels. And so he, uh, so, so essentially, eventually, the uh, with cooperating with the FBI, a warehouse was set up in Queens where the bombs were actually being made. And one of the, it's, and there were cameras. So I mean, this was actually a rare one where you actually were watching this plot unfold. Obviously, the key to that was not to let it happen. Uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, the informant would be reporting to the FBI really on a, a pretty much a daily basis. And more and more of the conspirators sort of came into the net, you know, as the plot got closer to what at least the conspirators thought was going to be its implementation. Uh, and, you know, at that point, clearly we pulled the plug on that plot and arrested everybody so that it couldn't happen. Also in federal court Thursday, suspects Mamu Abu Halima, Nidal Ayad, and Mohammed Salame. They were arraigned on new federal bombing charges that could get them life sentences if they're convicted. They've all entered not guilty pleas, and they all remain in jail, held without bond. There is this famous clip that was shown in the trial where they were mixing the bomb in Jersey City, literally mixing the bomb with a guy standing and praying next to the barrel where the bomb is. Yeah, this is when the FBI SWAT team entered and arrested all these guys. Sheikh Rahman has repeatedly denounced the World Trade Center bombing and has denied any knowledge of the latest bomb plot. Yet most of the suspects arrested in both incidents are known to be his followers. That incident that that scheme in combination with the trade center bombing the uh kahani's murder by saeed nosair and the training activities that had gone on in 1987 stitching all that together that enabled us to to construct a historical conspiracy prosecution against the cell so you ended up having you know two trials in pretty quick succession the first one toward late 1993 involved the four guys who had been arrested specifically for bombing the Trade Center. And then our trial, which went uh, for most of 1995, uh, was basically aimed at the blind shake and how the conspiracy formed historically. And then uh, the, the different things, the plans and the attacks that it carried out from the late 1980s until uh, the middle of 1993. 48 counts of guilty rang out in federal court. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and nine militant Muslims convicted of waging a war of terrorism against the U.S., a plot carried out in the bombing of the World Trade Center with future plans to bomb the United Nations, George Washington Bridge, and other New York landmarks. Government officials seize the day. If terrorism is theater, then the acts of terrorism planned by these defendants was theater of the absurd. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. 
Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The media messaging that we were putting out, which basically was this idea that, you know, you basically had a maybe a couple of dozen knuckleheads in Jersey City. And if you could just get them under control, there would be no more problem. We who were actually dealing with the case knew that it was it was much, much bigger than that. And it was probably it wasn't just probably it was undoubtedly beyond the capacity of law enforcement to deal with it. While everyone here at the mosque condemns violence and terrorism, some do have problems with the way the government prosecuted this case. All the evidence was, you know, fabricated to convict these people. Whenever I see entrapment, I have problems with that. You know, if you're tempting somebody to go ahead and do something wrong, you're using an informant who played an active role, things like that, I have problems with that. But terrorist expert Robert Kupperman doesn't believe the FBI did anything improper. He says with continuing tensions in the Middle East, there's bound to be more world terrorism. I, I think that we're, we're, we're in for uh, serious trouble. And there's no question that we're going to be uh, fighting terrorism for many years to come. All around the world, aggressors, thugs, and terrorists will conclude that the best way to get us to change our policies is to kill our people. It would be open season on Americans. That is why I am committed to getting this job done in Somalia, not only quickly, but also effectively. The shooting has stopped. But in downtown Mogadishu, the war of words continues to escalate. Are you angry at President Clinton? Yeah. Yeah. You are angry at President Clinton? Yes. And his government. Are you a supporter of General Adid? Yes. You think he's a good man? He's a good man. An honest man. You would like him to lead Somalia? I hope so. And you want the U.S. troops to leave? Yes. The United States was part of a U.N. humanitarian mission in Somalia, which if you recall, had collapsed into civil war in 1990. AEI fellow and advisor to Critical Threats Project, Catherine Zimmerman. And, you know, had gone through these horrible iterations. There was a horrific famine. Uh, Images were surfacing in the media. And there was a global outcry to support the Somalis. Uh, The U.S. went in and the operation was called Operation Restoring Hope. The idea was that the U.S. military would support humanitarian aid operations and facilitate the delivery of aid to starving Somalis uh, in a very insecure environment. Uh, Operation Restoring Hope began in summer of 1993, and as part of that operation, there was also a an effort to go after a Somali warlord. Um, so kind of a special forces detachment was was present as well, and they were going after a deed. Twelve American servicemen were killed and 78 wounded in bloody fighting in Mogadishu Sunday after U.S. forces raided a hotel where a deed was believed to be. From the military hospital in Landstuhl, Germany, some of the wounded talked about their experience. Oh, we uh, fast roped into the objective and uh, started losing our helicopters, which was our way out. So we had to wait for uh, reinforcements to come on the ground to pull us out. They hit a lot of roadblocks and a lot of obstacles. We did not go to Somalia with a military purpose. We never wanted to kill anyone. 
But those who attack our soldiers must know they will pay a very heavy price. It's interesting to to look back at how Osama bin Laden reacted to the Black Hawk Down incident because he actually claimed al-Qaeda's credit and said that al-Qaeda played a key role in training the Somalis uh, that attacked the U.S. forces and that the the Somalis were victorious, but also that al-Qaeda was behind some of this. And it's very difficult even today to say definitively that uh, al-Qaeda's presence in Somalia, in Mogadishu, contributed to the Black Hawk Down incident or not. Uh, But what is clear uh, is that we know that there were al-Qaeda operatives on the ground at the time. um, And there really was not a counter-narrative to bin Laden's claim uh, because, you know, the U.S. rapidly decided that the risk was not worth it, uh, folded up the mission. When I was in the Clinton administration, there was a potential threat that they would take uh, an airliner in the Philippines and hijack it. Former White House Chief of Staff, CIA Director, and Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. And uh, we were very concerned about that approach. We did not know this, uh, you know, in 1993 or for quite some time thereafter, but Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who was an uncle to Ramzi Youssef, uh, he was someone involved in uh, a plot that Youssef was involved in when he fled uh, from the Trade Center bombing and he went, when he went to the Philippines uh, and basically you know, was uh, engaged in trying uh, to blow up uh, a dozen U.S. jumbo jets coming back from Southeast Asia you know, to the United States. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was part of that plot. We didn't know much about it at the time, but we did know that he'd supplied some of the money uh, to Yousaf and his, again, on-the-ground cohorts in that Air Manila plot, as it was called, hatched in the Philippines. Fortunately, that was a foiled plot, but not before Yousaf actually was involved in a test run of the bomb on a Philippines airliner, which went off uh, after Yousaf had departed the plane on its first stop uh, toward Japan, and a Japanese passenger was killed in that. But we didn't know much about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed other than, at that time, other than we did eventually discover the familiar relationship, uncle uh, to nephew, and more importantly, that we had seen some funding uh, that was coming in from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, to Ramzi Youssef in Manila. After Ramzi Youssef uh, was arrested and brought back to the United States, uh, he was in a helicopter being flown from Stewart Air Base to New York City. And... um, they uh, flew next to the World Trade Center, and uh, one person in the helicopter, an FBI agent, told Ramsey, see, it's still standing. And Ramsey said, well, if I had more money, it won't be standing. Next time, it will go down. And I think that's something that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed really worked hard uh, to accomplish. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was a partner of his relative in many of the terrorist attacks and terrorist plots that he was trying to do. Uh, the World Trade Center is one of them, but also the Bujinka plots and many other plots in Southeast Asia and the Philippines, where Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed were working uh, very close uh, together in creating this new wave of terror. Ramzi Youssef, the alleged mastermind of the World Trade Center bombing, and his accomplice, Ayad Ismoil, who drove the vehicle carrying the bomb, face a maximum sentence of life imprisonment for a conspiracy to kill up to a quarter million people 
who worked in the Trade Center's Twin Towers and nearby buildings. We're very, very pleased today with the verdict, and uh, we look for uh, the task force and the prosecutors to, to continue to do the type of work that, that keep all the citizens of this great city you know, free from this type of thing. The 1993 bombing killed six people and injured a 1,000. Yusuf and Ismoil fled the country on commercial flights the night of the bombing. John O'Neill was the point person in the FBI that um, brought about, frankly, the, uh, the capture and rendition back to the United States of Ramsey Youssef. Ramsey Youssef was the mastermind of, you know, or one of the masterminds, at least, of the 1993 Trade Center bombing. Uh, and he was also one of the masterminds of the Manila air plot. So, you know, critical, critical figure, John O'Neill, critical to his capture. And Yusef was tried both the Trade Center bombing and the Manila air plot in the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, and convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. John O'Neill was uh, the special agent in charge for the National Security Division in New York. Uh, John had a long career in the FBI before he came to New York. Uh, he was in charge of terrorism in the Bureau at one point. He headed uh, different divisions in the FBI. Um, but as the special agent in charge for the National Security Division, he had um, you know, all the counterintelligence programs in the office uh, and all the counterterrorism programs in the office. And the New York office is the largest office of the FBI and um, the largest counterintelligence program, the largest counterterrorism program. Uh, John was a personality uh, bigger than life in so many different ways, um, but he also was a person who knew the threat. He understood the threat very well. He understood that we cannot, um, you know, ignore um, the threat of the jihadis and Osama bin Laden. And uh, and he was doing as much as he can to convince people in Washington, to convince people in uh, the FBI chain of command uh, that the focus should be on Osama bin Laden and uh, that Osama bin Laden is not done with us. And we need to basically, you know, get him before he gets us. Soon after that, uh, we had the bombing in Oklahoma City. Bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The first reaction to what happened in Oklahoma City was that it was the work of foreign terrorists. And uh, the president, to his credit, I think when he spoke to the American people, said that, you know, we really have to gather more information become before we uh, we come to any conclusions, which is a wise thing to do, because in the end, obviously, uh, it was something that was the result of domestic terrorism. I get a call about one o'clock in the morning. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. And this woman on the other line says, you don't know me, but I know you're supposed to start later today. Can you come in early? There has been a bombing at the Olympics. I look back off to the right. I saw an orange flash, I saw a puff of smoke, heard a bang, and then something picked me up and threw me across the pavement. We will spare no effort to find out who was responsible for this murderous act. We will track them down. We will bring them to justice. We will see that they are punished. So this is the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. And I remember thinking just, uh, you know, a couple of months before John Deutsch, who had been the uh, director of Central Intelligence at the time, had warned about it's not a question of if there will be a major terrorist attack in the United States, it's a question of when. 
Now, again, as we know, uh, you know, what has passed as prologue, we learned a lot about the Olympic bombing that was not connected to international events. But uh, I remember going in that day and thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the beginning of something bigger. And if you remember in the summer of 1996, you know, you also had uh, TWA 800 crash off of uh, East Mauritius, uh, Long Island. We will determine what happened. But for now, I want to caution again the American people against jumping to any conclusions and ask that today, overwhelmingly, our people uh, remember the families of the people who were on that flight in their prayers. People, you know, to this day, there are still some questions about that, th- that incident. And people thought, certainly at the time, that maybe that was connected to terrorism. Bin Laden was convinced that the way to get the United States out of the Muslim world, out of out of states that are predominantly Muslim, uh, was to cause America pain and that America would not bear the cost and would retreat. Uh, and he took this lesson from the bombing in Beirut by Hezbollah, uh, where after the Marine Barracks bombing, uh, the U.S. pulled out. So. What, what we see in terms of al-Qaeda's development is an emphasis in the early 1990s uh, of al-Qaeda assisting like-minded Islamist insurgent groups and militias uh, and their utter almost failure across the board to overthrow authoritarian regimes. Bin Laden then blames the United States and the West for backing those regimes and decides that it is the Western presence that, that needs to be expelled from Muslim lands. When Osama bin Laden was in Sudan after he left Saudi Arabia, he started focusing his fight against the United States. He was trying to find theological justification to attack the United States. You know, in Afghanistan, it was easy. The Soviets, the communists invaded a Muslim country. You have to liberate Muslim lands. In uh, the case of Saudi Arabia, it was a little bit more complicated. Why any mujahid has to go and fight the United States especially after the United States supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, supporting the Muslims in Bosnia, supporting the Muslims in Chechnya. So it was very difficult for him to make that argument. Osama bin Laden started to uh, look into the religious justification based on the hadith of the prophet, basically the sayings of the prophets. Allegedly, the prophets said to expel the infidels from the Arabian Peninsula. So. The United States and the Arabian Peninsula, it is an order for the prophet, from the Prophet to expel U.S. troops from Saudi, from, from Saudi Arabia. That created a lot of complexity among the jihadis and the Sunni Islamic extremists at the time. The U.S. was the enemy of Shia extremists, but not really Sunni extremists. And Osama bin Laden was trying to make some of the arguments that the Shia extremists, like Hezbollah, like Iran and Khomeini at the time, were putting out um, in, in the Sunni theological thoughts. And he realized that it wasn't as easy. So he basically issued a declaration of jihad later on uh, to expel the infidels on the Arabian Peninsula and start getting a lot of these jihadis who fought in Bosnia, who fought in Afghanistan, and convincing them that this is a real fight. In the mid-90s, he put out a fatwa. Fox News Channel correspondent Amy Kellogg. Or a call to arms. Muslims all around the world should unite against America because that was where really all evil lay. 
I think we really thought that Al-Qaeda became a threat to the United States when we heard its leader, bin Laden, uh, give these fatwas, these warnings, these declarations. Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent Greg Pelcott. Often in interviews, uh, people that I know uh, met with him and, and talked with him in his cave. And uh, by about 97, 98, uh, the United States was uh, number one on his bad guy list. He basically started to talk about uh, terrorism war. He said, this is not the war like we fought against the Soviets or against the Serbs. Uh, there is no enemy face to, you know, we're not fighting the enemy face to face. There's other ways we can defeat America. Uh, many of these Mujahideens never understood uh, that kind of war and they left. Um, so Osama bin Laden was busy while he, he's in Sudan uh, to find target lists against the US and the two embassies in East Africa um, were uh, declared as uh, a good targets. Now, in August 1998, uh, Osama bin Laden uh, finally um, attacked. Simultaneous explosions at U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania left more than 200 people dead and more than 5,000 injured. 12 Americans were killed in the attacks. You should all know that our teams are on the ground in Africa. They are tending to the wounded. They are providing security. They are searching and finding evidence. We will do whatever we can to bring the murderers to justice. It's certainly exploited a vulnerability in the embassy uh, where the kind of entry perimeter was not as secure uh, as it should have been to defend against such an attack. Um, and it benefited from the fact that Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah and other groups shared the same objective of getting the United States out of the Middle East. The first wave of U.S. support personnel arrived Sunday at the bombed U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. The Pentagon is sending a total of 14 aircraft to Kenya and Tanzania. On board are anti-terrorist experts, medical teams, and supplies. Meanwhile, a team of Israeli troops specializing in searching for victims in bombed buildings called another survivor, a Kenyan woman from the rubble. Right now we're taking pieces of the building a bit by a bit because uh, it's a very delicate uh, job to rescuing people if there is anybody to rescue here. So it'll take a couple of days until we finish it. It is impossible to imagine what life might be like for someone trapped under tons of rubble now for more than 48 hours. But if there is a chance, no matter how remote, someone might still be alive, rescuers say they will not give up. As for the investigation, it is still not clear what group might be responsible for the attack. David Robertson, a political officer at the U.S. Embassy, tells Fox News there was a small explosion and gunfire before the devastating blast. There must have been two explosions. Other sources say the first explosion was a grenade used by the terrorists as they tried to force their way into the embassy. The same source says there was a brief shootout with embassy security before the car bomb was set off. An Israeli newspaper says an Arabic-speaking man is reportedly in custody for taking part in the bombing. I think it was clear when uh, the embassy was attacked that al-Qaeda and foreign terrorists uh, were intent on doing as much damage as they could uh, to the United States in whatever way they could, and that killing innocent people uh, was an objective that 
they had. And I think the significance of the of the attacks on the embassies in 1998, Andrew McCarthy, was that they were able to pull this off under circumstances where internationally intelligence agencies, particularly in the West, but across the world, uh, knew who these guys were uh, and that they were training and that they were trying to carry out these operations. And yet they were able to carry out two major attacks on American embassies and kill combined, I think, over 230 people. Bin Laden, you know, praised the suicide bombers and held up the attacks as evidence of the, the, the progress of the jihad against the United States. Uh, they were certainly symbolic attacks. Um, Al-Qaeda carried out a synchronized bombing of, of two U.S. embassies in East Africa and you know, really ground uh, operations to a halt for a time being in terms of the U.S. footprint in, in the continent. The FBI on the ground in Nairobi working with the Kenyans uh, arrested um, uh, Al-Wali. And Al-Wali was a Qaeda operative who was supposed to be one of the suicide bombers in Kenya, uh, but he survived the attack because uh, his job was to open the gate so the other driver uh, will uh, drive in. And he survived opening the gate, so he realized um, that uh, if he stayed, that will be suicide. So he escaped, according to his, his analysis of the situation. So he escaped and he was injured. Uh, the FBI um, found him, and during uh, the uh, interrogation, um, uh, an FBI agent from New York, uh, John Anasaf, interestingly enough, the same person who uh, first raised the alarm on uh, the blind shake, um, asked Awali to write the phone number that he called after he survived. It was a hunch that, that Awali will do that. Awali kind of you know, acted stupid about it. He um, slammed his hand on the table and said, write it down. And interestingly enough, Awali just took the pencil and wrote the phone number down. Checked that phone number. That phone number was contacted numerous times with Osama bin Laden's uh, satellite phone uh, in Kandahar. And you could also tell that people who were involved in investigating the stuff knew that bigger attacks were coming because one of the huge brawls that we had in the Justice Department around 1996 was when the Clinton administration, the Clinton Justice Department imposed what became known as the wall, which made it very difficult for the national security side of the FBI's house to, to uh, share information with the criminal investigator side of the FBI's house and the prosecutors so that you couldn't get you couldn't pull both sides together and get a full mosaic of what the threat was. Certainly the FBI, we worked hand in glove with the FBI on the you know, law enforcement side. Mary Jo White. There's also an intelligence side of the FBI as well as the CIA and our other intelligence agencies. And because of various laws, um, you, you, there's not free communication between the intelligence side uh, of our agencies and the law enforcement side unless there's a determination made that you're going to bring a case and the attorney general basically approves uh, the, the law enforcement side, my side of things, uh, prosecuting uh, terrorists uh, can receive that information. So 
you know, there, there were some limits on what we could receive and when we could receive it from the intelligence side of the House. I think the CIA and the other intelligence agencies also had to get used to working with, you know, a U.S. attorney's office and prosecutors because they were very, very concerned, rightly so, frankly, that, you know, if they provided information, they would lose control over it. And it could be very uh, significant information that, that you know, that, uh, that uh, contained uh, identities of human sources, means and methods that the, that the intelligence side was using you know, to try to find terrorists and disrupt terrorist cells so that they would prevent terrorist attacks. Once you turn that over to the prosecutors and they have a case, uh, there are other rules that sort of trigger, which are our discovery rules. And so they you know, had a concern that that information might have to be turned over, you know, in a public trial to the defense. You know, if you go back and look at the, you know, the memoranda that were flying in the middle of that argument over the wall, what you find is that, you know, people who were closest to these investigations understood that if we couldn't connect the dots intelligence wise that mass murder attacks were going to happen. So, you know, we didn't I don't think any of us I, I certainly was not surprised. I, I mean I was horrified just like everybody else is by the by the uh, the carnage that was involved in these attacks, but nobody should have been surprised by them. It took us a while to convince people in Washington that bin Laden was behind the attack, especially that he never did something like this before. But in FBI New York, we were focusing on him and we knew that he is up to no good. And we knew after the interview that he gave to John Miller and ABC News warning the United States that that is a very serious warning. Frankly, in June of 1998, June of 1998, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were indicted in a sealed indictment in the Southern District of New York. So people in the field, we knew what was going on. The problem was the leadership uh, did not uh, see the threat as um, imminent. Uh, we, we were being briefed, obviously, on uh, what, uh, what bin Laden and al-Qaeda uh, were up to. Leon Panetta. And very concerned about, particularly after the attacks on our, on our embassies, that uh, al-Qaeda and bin Laden represented uh, a real threat. Uh, to the security of our forces. The United States launched an attack this morning on one of the most active terrorist bases in the world. It is located in Afghanistan and operated by groups affiliated with Osama bin Laden, a network not sponsored by any state, but as dangerous as any we face. We also struck a chemical weapons-related facility in Sudan. Our target was the terrorists' base of operation and infrastructure. Our objective was to damage their capacity to strike at Americans and other innocent people. Osama bin Laden was of the belief that because the, the, the attacks that we conducted as a result of the 1998 embassy bombings were such feeble attacks. Former Vice Chief of Staff of the United States Army. General Jack Keane. In his words, he was he described it as, look at, we killed hundreds of these Americans in Africa, and they're not even willing to come here and shed their blood to fight us. What President Clinton had opted to do, we gave him about five or six options. He took the option 
I think that had the least amount of political risk associated with it, and that is to conduct some cruise missile attacks against a training area that Al-Qaeda was using inside of Afghanistan. I don't think we did much damage whatsoever. And later on, we found out that Osama bin Laden looked at that as a sign of weakness. The American reaction to the 1998 embassy bombing with the strikes in Sudan and the strikes in Afghanistan was very limited. Catherine Zimmerman. It was punitive and fundamentally going after the direct source of the attacks, uh, but was not going to be enough to change al-Qaeda's mind and actually did not really set al-Qaeda back in the long term. We knew that Bill Clinton had tried to take out Osama bin Laden and had failed to do that or passed up the opportunity. Brit Hume. And, you know, there was a, the famous attack on a pill plant that, you know, was considered to be kind of a pinprick. And, I mean, you didn't hear a lot of people arguing that the United States had mounted a major uh, effort to defeat terrorism. Um, it was considered to be a threat, but not really that major a threat. I don't believe any of us truly understood the impact of the embassy bombings in Eastern Africa. Co-anchor of America's Newsroom on the Fox News Channel, Bill Hemmer. They were horrendous, and they were effective, and they killed a lot of people. In the U.S., there were not a lot of American casualties. There were mostly Kenyans and Tanzanians who were working on behalf of the embassy. It was a big miss on our part. Early on, when I joined the FBI in 1997, I, I, I wrote a memo based on my own research in grad school uh, that uh, we need to pay attention uh, to uh, this guy, Osama bin Laden. I assumed nobody in the U.S. government knew of him at the time. Ali Sufan. And I explained why Osama bin Laden is a dangerous person and uh, he means us uh, a lot of ill will. Um, so um, that memo landed on John O'Neill's desk, and um, John asked me to go to his office, and we discussed it, and I found out that we have actually two people in New York who are focusing on Osama bin Laden, and they were working with a uh, few folks at the CIA, but the tar- they are targeting bin Laden as a financier more than anything else. After the you know East Africa embassy bombing, uh, John initially, you know, kind of like moved me away from all other uh, programs that I have. And I started to focus mainly on Osama bin Laden. We will be participating live with all of the world as they celebrate this New Year's Eve, this Millennium Eve, and they will be t- participating with us. Giant screen TVs will surround Times Square, broadcasting live New Year's Eve celebrations from all over the world. The event will start as the first New Year's is celebrated at 7 a.m. Eastern Time in Western Samoa and will end 24 hours later when it's finally January 1st, 2000 in every country on the earth. I can't say that there was much of a fear regarding terrorism at all. It was primarily Y2K and whether or not the Microsoft software was going to work. And we all found out how that worked because it did work and there was no problem. Jordan, that was a cornerstone of their millennium plot. Um, they were planning to attack few hotels in Amman, targeting pilgrims who were going to the Holy Land. 
because of the millennium. And also, um, they discussed assassinating uh, the Pope, John Paul II, when he was um, uh, performing baptism in the Jordan River. Um, that plot failed. Uh, we worked very closely with the uh, Jordanian uh, allies, and they did a fantastic job in putting the network together and uh, arresting all these people who were involved in finding the explosives. Uh, that was uh, my first major case, in a way, uh, working with the Jordanians and our uh, you know, colleagues in the intelligence community. Um, that person in charge of that plot from Al-Qaeda's uh, side uh, was uh, Ra'id Hijazi, who is an American-born Jordanian-Palestinian. He was born in California and he was living in Boston. And then he went to Jordan, went to Afghanistan, put the cell together to conduct these attacks in, uh, in Jordan. Those terrorists have been linked to Osama bin Laden, the man believed to have masterminded the bombings of U.S. embassies in Africa. Security precautions at the nation's airports are more visible. And at the U.S. borders, backed-up traffic testifies to the increased scrutiny of vehicles and people coming into the country. And it's been getting tighter since last week's arrest in Washington state of Ahmad Rassam, the Algerian who has just been indicted on charges of trying to smuggle powerful explosives into the U.S. There were actually a few millennium plots that were going on in the first in, in, at the same time. The last millennium plot that was going on was uh, Ahmed Rassam, an Algerian extremist uh, from Montreal, Canada. He went to Vancouver, uh, mixed a bomb, uh, put it in a car, drove it to uh, Seattle. And the plot was to attack LAX airport on the eve of the millennium. Uh, that plot failed. Uh, because uh, a very alert and smart um, custom agent. She realized that uh, Rassam is not answering, uh, you know, uh, questions. He's taking time to find the cover story. Uh, they start looking into his car, and uh, when they were doing that, he tried to escape and run away. They stopped him. They found the explosives, and we found out later that the target was LAX, and he was connected to a network in Afghanistan that's connected to Al-Qaeda, and the main goal was to basically do a terrorist attack in the United States. So those were the known plots that Al-Qaeda and their allies were planning to do on the eve of the millennium. Imagine if they were successful. The millennium will go down in history as a totally different event. time on Fox News Rewind 9-11. Suspected terror mastermind Osama bin Laden has declared his own war on the U.S. You could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly and violently thrust up into the right. We have a new fierce enemy which is able to take us on not with armies in the battlefield but in a totally asymmetric way. We were so focused on impeachment and Monica Lewinsky's dress we ignored what were red flags. The transformation that occurred was Bin Laden understanding that in order to attack the United States, he needed to hit America where it hurts, and that's in the homeland. 
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.